0: Welcome to Ruling Sports, a podcast giving you a playbook for life. I'm your host, Alicia Jessup. Join me as I interview athletes, leaders, and innovators to uncover their game plans for success and give you insights to rule your life. Let the play clock begin. Sports fans love streaks. Rocky Marciano, Yukon Women's Basketball, the 1972 Miami Dolphins. We love streaks because they give us a rare glimpse that the impossible is actually possible. What's your favorite sports streak? After today, my hope is that if it's not already yours, you have a new one. Today's guest is Trisha Zorn-Hudson, the most decorated Paralympian in the history of the Paralympic Games. Born in California, Trisha's parents received scary news early in her life. She was born with aniridia, an absence of the iris in her eyes. At the time, significant stigma surrounded people with disabilities. Trisha's parents were actually told that she would need to be institutionalized. This possibility wasn't an option for either Trisha or her parents. Instead, Trisha became heavily involved in and talented at swimming early in her youth. Her ability was so great that she became the first visually impaired athlete to earn an NCAA Division I scholarship. She competed at the University of Nebraska, where she became a four-time All-American. Before enrolling at the University of Nebraska, Trisha actually competed in her first Paralympic Games at the young age of 16. There, she won seven gold medals. Between 16 and 40, Trisha would win 55 Paralympic medals, including 41 gold medals across seven Paralympic Games. In this episode, Trisha discusses the stigma she faced as an athlete with a disability, how the landscape for athletes with disabilities has changed, and what still needs to be done to create an equitable playing field for athletes with disabilities. She tells us why she attended law school despite a guidance counselor telling her it was impossible for a visually impaired person and how changing her routine allowed her to attain one of the greatest streaks in sport history. Already inducted into the United States Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame, this September, Trisha will be inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. It was such an honor to speak with one of the world's greatest athletes. I know you're going to be inspired by Trisha's story. So now, join me in welcoming Trisha Zorn-Hudson to The Ruling Sports Podcast. Trisha, welcome to The Ruling Sports Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you about your incredible journey and what you're up to today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: What goal, quote, or mindset has guided your life?
1: I guess from a young age, you know, never to allow society to create barriers that will keep me from achieving what I wanted to achieve. So it's always been a goal of mine to be able to go above those obstacles and to be able to achieve, you know, things that people didn't think that I could do.
0: That's amazing. And we'll we'll probably get more into why that's so important to you. But tell us a little bit about your childhood where did you grow up and what were you into as a kid
1: yeah so i i was uh, born and raised in southern california in a small town and orange and then moved to Mission Viejo. So we spent a lot of time at the beach in the summers. Growing up as a young kid, I was usually in the water most of the time. Mm-hmm. I was kind of involved in a lot of sports. My parents wanted me to try all different things when it comes to letting me put my limits on what I, could, felt, I felt comfortable doing. And it just seemed like swimming was, came natural to me.
0: Oh, that's awesome. You've kind of hinted at it. You were born with a condition called aniridia. Can you tell us about what that is?
1: Yes. Aniridia, it's a rare eye condition and it's basically the lack of the iris and the iris functions as like a camera lens. So when I was born, I was born without the iris or the color part of the eye. So I had just the pupil as a camera lens functions, it detours, either it allows light in or it, depending on what light kind of light you want, it can shut light out. Mm. So I didn't have that function because of, so any bright light coming in and anything like that was very hard on my eyes. Coming with aniridia, it comes with having cataracts as well. So my vision was very blurry and it was very sometimes painful because of the light coming in
0: wow and so you were born with this condition yes
1: yes and it was a rare eye condition because um, they did genetic studies and nobody in my family had it um, it's just a gene that is thrown um, during development of the eye and they just don't even know how you know how it obviously genetics but uh, other than that they did it's not genetics from a standpoint that they could go back far enough that they mm-hmm. couldn't even find where it even d- developed or created
0: so what did doctors say about yeah. how this prognosis could impact you
1: yeah you know back there back in the se- you know 70s um medical technology wasn't even there so back then You know, the prognosis is very poor. My parents were told that I would be, you know, very dependent on people. I would probably have to be put in an institution um, and be reliant on other people for my everyday, you know, skills, um, daily living skills.
0: How did your parents respond to that?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't very. It wasn't very friendly uh, response. <laughs> my mom, especially, she said, "Well, that's not happening," you know. And she was very, uh, you know, determined to not allow that that prognosis or diagnosis uh, of me to stop me from doing what I wanted to do. And she was very passionate about that. Um, and I think that's where I gained a lot of my. You know, values and determination, just because of her due diligence and wanting to go forward and and make a difference within the community, the disability community.
0: Mm-hmm. That that's so awesome and impactful. Yeah. From where you sit today, beyond what you've already told us, is there something about your mother or father's parenting style that maybe, if I'm a parent listening to this and my child has a similar diagnosis? You would advise them to utilize to bring up this child and let him or her know anything's possible.
1: I would definitely, you know, I would show probably examples of of people who have overcome, very successful people who have overcome, you know, maybe a disability, whether it be myself or other. There are many people out there that have overcome many physical disabilities who've been successful, but it comes from true dedication and grit and like I said at the beginning, uh, society obviously puts stigmas on the disability community. And unfortunately, you know, it takes those people, uh, core group of people to show that, you know, these, the stigma and or obstacles that people or limitations that people may put up, or a thought process that may be have to be you know, negated. And through our actions, those limits and those obstacles are mitigated because of that.
0: Did you ever get a chance to circle back with any of those doctors and let them know how well you're doing?
1: You know, no, I didn't, but I wish I could. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, even, even back when I was in school, you know, and even up to high school, it was, it was a very challenging time because at that time, again, you know, you're going to school in the seventies and stuff and inclusion was not a, really an option and, you know, getting help for You know, just the simplest things like getting Mm -hmm. in large print books or something like that. You know, it wasn't, you know, teachers at that time weren't, I guess, as willing. And so Mm -hmm. the constant fight. So you're
0: growing up in Southern California, where if you haven't traveled here, we have incredible beaches. You're playing in the water. How do you get involved with swimming, though, at a competitive level?
1: Yeah. You know, in or in actually, it was in Tustin, they were starting a new swim team, and that was at an early age. Um, when I was eight and my, both my sister and I, um, we had asked my mom, we're like, Hey, can you just take us and see if, you know, what that's all about? You know, we didn't know anything about the competitive, you know, strokes or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was just strictly, do you, you know, can we just come and join? And so we did, I enjoyed it. And then when I was 10, that's when I was kind of recruited to come swim at Natadors in Mission Viejo because they needed another nine, 10 year old to swim on one of their relays. And so that's when we moved down to Mission Viejo. And I, that's where my main swimming career took place.
0: Were you a natural? Were you instantly really talented?
1: You know what? I i mean, I think I, I drew to it because I felt more natural in it. And because of my vision, I didn't have to think about it so hard. It wasn't like I had to focus on a ball or I had to, you know, watch out for something. But it just came natural. And I just felt I felt like that was something that made me, it gave me that more confidence, I think, mm-hmm. in the water. Just knowing that, you know, I could swim alongside somebody. And I didn't have to be reliant on somebody telling me, Hey, a ball's coming or, you know, watch out for this. Whereas in other sports that I, I tended to have to do that.
0: Was there anyone else in the swim club who had vision impairment?
1: No. Um, you know, and actually through my career, not just in the early ages, but even through college, I was the, uh, one of the first NC two A division one phys athletes, to uh, earn a full athletic scholarship to the University of Nebraska, um, and so no other NC2A college have ever had physically disabled, you know, athletes on their teams, and so going into that arena was a learning experience for both me and for both the, my college swimmers and also coaches because you know, they had not really been exposed to somebody, you know, so they had a lot of like kind of I said earlier, they had a lot of digmas, and they Mm -hmm. had a lot of questions. And, you know, so it was a great learning experience for everyone.
0: How did you navigate that?
1: It was interesting, because, again, it was they, they had a lot of questions. I'm a person that, you know, I'm not somebody that will go out and say, Hey, I have a, you know, a learning disability. If somebody maybe ask me questions, you know, and then I'll engage in the questions and I'm happy to engage in that. So they just treated me like any other swimmer would be treated or any other teammate would be treated. So they knew that I had to have help, let's say, because like in swimming, you go off in practice, you go off what we call a pace clock. And so I wouldn't be able to see the pace clock because it was like on a wall. Mm -hmm. And so they would tell me, you know, Go, you know, or I would follow somebody in the next lane. You know, I Mm -hmm. would know when they were leaving, I left. So it was just something that they knew that that's the reason why I needed that assistance. And the coaches didn't treat me any different and nor did I want to be treated Mm -hmm. any different um, when it came to came to practice or came to a meet or anything like that.
0: So as you mentioned, you were the first person with a physical disability to earn an NCAA division one athletics scholarship. That's, that's absolutely incredible. What year was this though? Uh, It was
1: 1982.
0: Okay. So we're in the eighties. What type you, you've mentioned several times that you encountered stigmas. What were some of the stigmas you were facing in the seventies and the eighties?
1: Well, one, you know, is like, just because you have a visual impairment, you won't be able to, you, you couldn't do a lot of things. You wouldn't be able to drive you wouldn't be able to swim. You can't do this. You can't read. You wouldn't be able to go to college because it'd be too difficult. You know, just a lot of a lot of negative feedback. And, and like I say, I like it. it's just the lack of knowledge and understanding of what somebody is maybe going through or maybe what their quote disability is. Um, sometimes people don't see my disability, and so. They'll, you know, question it. They'll like, well, why, you know, why are you mm-hmm. doing that? And until and they see that I'm looking at something close or something like that. So just the different stigmas of having, mm-hmm. you know, having to always having to almost defend or argue the fact that I have, this is the reason why I'm doing something is because of, you know, maybe my disability.
0: Has any of that changed?
1: I think over time it's changed. And I think we as a a culture and society through disability rights, and uh, I I believe that the culture has changed. I think that being in the community of being visually impaired, it's it's a different community because, you know, again, sometimes you can see your disability, sometimes you can't. And therefore people may judge you differently. And so I believe that sometimes it's, it has changed. We have changed as society when it comes to acknowledging more disabilities, physical disabilities, but I think we still have a ways to go.
0: And I might be putting you on the spot here, but (laughs) if there's like, when you say we still have a ways to go. Yeah. If there's one actionable item that you would like to see addressed as it comes to athletes with disabilities what what can allies stand up and do to make this a better place.
1: For example, um, like the Paralympics and the Olympics, that was the whole point of the creation of the Paralympics is because they're parallel to the Olympic Games. The Mm -hmm. only differential between them is obviously they're Paralympics, they're people with physical disabilities compared to the Olympic Games. But then you're talking about from a standard of, you know, whether it's the prize money or uniforms or, you know, sometimes we think it may be something simple, but there are distinct differences that they're still not being equal, but they're mm-hmm. saying they want it to be equal.
0: I think that's such a great call out. And I've read some articles where you've spoken on this. It, it's equity,
1: you know. It's, yes, it is equity.
0: The, the governing body is saying we want this to be equal. But to your point, exactly. If you look at things like facilities, if you look at training coaches, yeah it's not equal. Do you want exclusive insights from your favorite athletes, sport industry leaders, and innovators delivered straight to your inbox? Subscribe today to the ruling sports newsletter. The ruling sports newsletter cuts the mystery out of success by bringing you leadership tools, entrepreneurial strategies, Business insights and wellness tips straight from some of the world's most positively impactful people. So go to rulingsports.com today and subscribe for free. You you actually had a great story about access to facilities and when you actually got to go to the Olympic Training Center. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, um, it was before the Paralympic Games in 2000, and another athlete, Beth Scott, and myself, uh, we were pushing for equal access to the facility, to the Olympic training centers, um, and we felt that, you know, we, we should be, uh, have the opportunity to be able to train, you know, in a facility just like, you know, Olympic resident athletes do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had to go to the Olympic Committee and we had to do our proposal and say why we thought this. Finally, they decided that they would take this on as a pilot program. For uh, the Games in Sydney in 2000, we were able to go out to train at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, and it, the first day it was like, and I, and I've stated this in multiple interviews is that they had the pool. There's a, the Olympic training center pool is 50 meters. Cause that's usually the Olympic style is 50 meters. And then by 25 yard pool, they had the pool set up as 25 yards. And we're like, why are you, why are you have it as 25 yards? <laughs> and they said, they're like, well, we didn't know if you could swim that far. Wow. Yeah. And we're like, what in the world? You know, I mean that is just to our point of you had no idea they had they thought that they would go they were going to have to do more change and we didn't win our proposal we didn't ask for change they they thought that they would have to change the the dining facility because mm-hmm. we would take you know we would take uh, extra time or they thought that we were going to put our hands in the food and, oh wow you know, Jesse yeah just <laughs> like some egregious you know thought process but. Um, Like in a word, like the laundry facility, they would have to change the laundry facility. We asked nothing of that. Mm. We were just asking for access Mm -hmm. or like the pool, the weight room, you know, because especially for an athlete who is visually impaired, like myself and for Beth, who was a visually impaired athlete as well, transportation is a big, is a big issue for, for those athletes, because you have to get to practice. Well, if mm-hmm. you don't have, if you live somewhere that doesn't have public transportation, mm-hmm. you're dependent on somebody else. Mm-hmm. If you're at the training center, it is all inclusive. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. You live there. You you know the dorms are there where you live. The food service, everything is there is accessible, mm-hmm. and so that would take that stress of transportation away from from the athlete, so they'd right. be able to train just like an Olympic athlete. That's one reason they go and train because they don't want to have to have the extra burdens that they have to worry about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were where we're asking for.
0: Wow. Okay. There is a lot to unpack here. (laughs) Yes, there is. Let's get this on the table right now. Trisha is the most decorated athlete in the history of the Paralympic Games. She has won 55 medals over seven Paralympics. So the story you just told us is arising in 2000. What year was your first Paralympics?
1: My first Games was in 1980, and that was in Arnhem, Holland. And the reason kind of why I got to the games in Arnhem Holland was because I was 16 at the time training hard and, and was in the Olympic trials for the able body. I hate to say that, but able body with people without physical disabilities. And I had missed the games, the Olympic games by one 100th in the 200 back at that time, you know, of course, at a 16 year old, you know, it, you're pretty impressionable. And it's like, It was devastating. And so I didn't know what to do if I wanted to continue swimming or whatever. And somebody locally had heard about me and they were involved in blind sports within the community in California. And at that time, they then contacted me and said, you know, we're interested. Are you interested in going to a meet to try and qualify for the Paralympic Games? Mm-hmm. And at that time I had no idea what the Paralympic Games. Wow. Yeah.
0: So the the reason why I wanted to ask that is yeah. This journey begins in 1980. And I think a lot of us who aren't active or familiar in this space, we all probably assumed that the Paralympians are training with the Olympians because the letter P is in the USOPC's name. And what you're saying is for the first 20 years of your Paralympic experience, not only did you not have access to those facilities, you had to petition to gain access.
1: We did. And actually not just petition, but before that for 1980 and 1984, we actually had to pay Mm. for our uniforms and pay for part of our trip Mm. just to compete. So (laughs) wow.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I want to say something really quick and people are going to be like, wow, Alicia, you're taking us like far off the road here. I do not have physical disabilities. I live a very privileged life. In April of 2023, I was walking home in Santa Monica and I noticed an elderly man stuck in the middle of the street in a motorized wheelchair. And so I took a look at him and I'm like, I think his wheelchair broke down. So I approached him and I said, did your wheelchair break down? And he said, yes. I'm like, okay, I will help you. Now, what transpired? This man was a veteran. He fought in the Vietnam war. He's 70 years old. He lives in the VA. He was out for a fun day in Santa Monica, enjoying his life. I couldn't, Trisha. it took me two hours to source a ride for this man. You can't just call a taxi cab. Because taxi cabs are not equipped yep. for wheelchairs. Yep. I couldn't order an Uber. Uber yep. isn't equipped for a wheelchair. Yep. Luckily, Lyft in some cities has wheelchair access abilities, but it was just so eye opening. What you said about transportation really struck me things that we take for granted. Yes that are so critical to your ability to navigate throughout this life and what you're saying is as an athlete that's really a competitive advantage <laughs> i mean yeah, truly so yeah. i i hope people listen to this episode and slow down and think hmm what are some things in my sphere of influence that i can advocate for greater access to people with disabilities
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I know that we have talked about, you know, several people have talked about, obviously because of transportation, Uber is a big thing when it started to become really big. Obviously, Uber was big for the blind community and visually impaired community. However, again, like you said, not just wheelchair, but they don't, those people who have like a guide dog, Mm. they couldn't Uber because they don't allow dogs. Mm in a vehicle. So, so there are access issues and I think it's really something that needs to be addressed.
0: Absolutely. And it's something that people need to spend more time thinking about. Again, I'm in Los Angeles where we have a lot of resources. And what I was thinking as I was with this man is, what if we were in Des Moines, Iowa? <laughs> like what how would I be helping this person yeah. right now and what position would he be in? So, you finally gain access to the training facility. Okay. Has that changed at all in the last 2 decades?
1: Yes, it has actually. It's changed quite a bit. You know, just from our uh, our ability to be the pilot program and to show that not just the a committee, Olympic and Paralympic committee, what our needs were, you know, it had opened doors now for future athletes coming up. And so now they have a full blown um athlete resident program for Paralympic athletes to go to all the training centers. Was it something that was a selfish motive, maybe? At first it was, but then it, you know, we wanted to be able to show to be able to promote that for other athletes coming up.
0: It's okay to be selfish sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Ruling Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. It goes a long way to growing the show. Thank you for your support. You mentioned earlier that when you were a child that the doctor said you might not be able to learn, you might not be able to read Books, well, not only did you learn a lot, and I'm assuming you've read a lot because after undergrad at Nebraska, you went to law school. What attracted you to the law?
1: I had always been interested in it. And again, going back to the stigma, you know, when I was younger and I'd be like, oh, I like, you know, that sounds interesting. I was always kind of pushed away from it because of my vision mm-hmm. um, and people, like my counselors in school, and they're like, oh, you know, that would be too hard you know, there's a lot of reading and in law school, you don't, you couldn't, you shouldn't have to do it, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's probably not a good career choice for you. So you may want to choose something else. So Mm -hmm. being naive and, and, you know, not going against what my, you know, what my parents and my mom was really driving is, you know, do what you want to do. I thought, well, maybe they know better, you know, at this Mm -hmm. time. Um, And so that's why I went into teaching. And then through that, you know, it was just kind of the right, the right time at the right place. And that's where uh, after 2000, I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'll need to do it now. So Mm -hmm. that's when I decided to apply and and go to law school at that time. The school where I went to IU and here in Indianapolis, being a law school, you would think that they would, you know, take on and they would really be equal to <laughs> disability rights, but not so much, yeah. you know, for the an the, uh, individual with, uh, they had never had a student uh, visually impaired, so mm-hmm. they didn't know how to accommodate me. And mm-hmm. of course, when I would asked, you know, I would like to have this like, RA or this accommodation, it was a big struggle, but, you know, I was very fortunate during this time. I truly really believe that you're placed in a situation at a certain time. And at that time, we had a dean of our law school. He was from Australia hmm. <laughs> and he actually had saw me in the Paralympic Games in Sydney. Huh. And so he actually knew, you know, that, you know, my story, my vision. Mm. And so he was a a big influence in starting the culture of accepting and, and, you know, I'm like, when you're in law school, there's certain things that you have to do that as a, as a visually impaired student, I wasn't able to do, you know, like I couldn't read a normal text because there wasn't books that were, you know, in large print. They didn't have audiobooks at that time. Wow. So so I had to ask, you know, could I have, you know, the slides early so I know exactly what were cases we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And at first there was pushback because, you know, <sighs> you don't want to give an advantage to somebody, you know. Yeah. But oh, anyway, yeah.
0: huge advantage. Um, <laughs> huge, huge advantage. advantage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I did it and I'm glad I went, you know, and I and I and it was a good experience, but again, it was a learning experience not just for me, but for the for the faculty.
0: Wow. You're really a trailblazer. You've a lot of people <laughs> send you a thank you card sitting in this seat, I'm sure I'm going to offend a few people with this, but that's okay. If you're offended, you probably need to reflect on why you're offended, but right. don't listen to guidance counselors.
1: Right.
0: So, so many people come on this show and they're like, yeah, I had a guidance counselor and they told me this wasn't <laughs> yeah. possible, but yeah. look at me now. People, you've got to trust your gut. You have to trust yep. your heart. You know what's best for you. Do not outsource the opinions of others for what you know is your true calling. So yep. gosh, I can't imagine. Like we need to have like a guidance counselor. Convention.
1: <laughs> and, I think that's great advice.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then we can have um, a talent show of all the people that succeeded despite their guidance counselor. There you go. <laughs> Do you practice law today? What are you up to today? Um,
1: actually, I don't. I was practicing. I, um, I worked for the in- right after law school. I worked in one of the clinics at the law school. And then also then I went and I started working with the Indiana Pro Bono Commission. And I did a lot of their FOIA uh, issues. People have different passions. And then um, one of my passions was always working, which I thought was interesting about your story about the gentleman. Mm -hmm. the veteran in the wheelchair, because I've always been very passionate about the military. My father was in the military, my grandfather was in the military. And so I just have a, you know, my heart is with it. And so I had an opportunity to come work at the Department of Veterans Affairs in hmm. uh, the fiduciary unit. And so that's where I'm working today.
0: Tell tell us what that means, the fiduciary unit.
1: Yeah, so we oversee we oversee fiduciaries that have been appointed to veterans or their beneficiaries. To make sure that their VA benefits are being used and that the benefits aren't being misused or misappropriated. Mm -hmm. So we're actually um, making sure that, you know, in the long run, if they're going to be able to have funds when they get to a point where they have to have, um, them, whether it be care or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's a great passion that I've always had. And it's very rewarding to know that you are, you know, somebody who's been entitled to certain benefits and you're finally able to provide those benefits for them. It's, you know, and to know the impact that they're have, it's going to have on that, that person's life. It's really rewarding.
0: It's, It's important work. And thank you for stepping up to do it. You were not a one hit wonder, as we've said several times now, you won 55 medals across the ages of 16 to 40. How did you maintain that level of success over such a wide span of time?
1: You know, I mean, that ride was, I'm not going to say that it was all great. I mean, obviously an athlete who has had a career for that long time of time period, there's always been ups and downs, better ups than downs, but that's just the, that's just the role that you get. There was a time in college that decided after my freshman year that I just didn't know if I wanted to to continue because I had gotten Sick, I had mono, I wasn't performing the way I wanted to perform, and so you you know, it's a mind game. And it's like, should I continue? Should I not? And I finally just had to step away and Mm. for a little bit for a few months and say, Do I really want to continue this? And actually, that was when the one summer I had changed teams instead of going back to California, my college coach knew a coach here in Indiana, Mm. and so. I'm like, well, why not try so to see if it makes a difference, you know, maybe I do need an environment change. Maybe I do need a coaching change, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did. I, I went, came here to Indiana and I trained with a coach and, um, my perspective, you know, had changed completely. Um, I was a different athlete. I was a different swimmer. You know, it wasn't that, expectation I fell in love with the sport again and accepted the fact that you know I wasn't gonna get in the pool a hundred percent of the time you know in competitions and get my best time all the time mm. It's just not gonna happen
0: Where do you source inspiration?
1: I think a lot of it has to do with going back to my childhood and not having to like I said earlier to defend myself or to prove myself. But I think I feel that if I can inspire somebody else to be able to overcome things that they feel that were impossible and make them possible, I feel that that's inspiring and that allows me to keep going myself. That gave me that extra drive to do so. And I think that's why it's gone over into my professional life too. You know, I could have stayed back and you know i got not gone to law school or not gone to do the things that i've i'm doing and but i'm just constantly thinking of wanting to be more open and transparent and allow mm-hmm. others to be a part of my be a part of my success and be a part of my journey.
0: What a gift. What an absolute gift. You've already been inducted into the United States Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame, but this September, you're going to be inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. what what does this mean to you?
1: Oh, wow. You know, I was humbled by having the nod into getting into the Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. But when they reached out to me, and they let me know about this International Swimming Hall of Fame, you know, that's something that is you hear about it. I mean, you always heard about it when you were a younger swimmer and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And you never, you know, I never thought I would be it because you never think that the paralympics would be accepted or into their culture. We just got the US Paralympic and Olympic Committee together. I was told I was the first Paralympic athlete to be able to be inducted into the swimming hall of fame. You know, I was very I'm very honored and and very humbled like I said and I'm very thankful that they're opening up that category for others to be able to, you know, try and reach that goal to to maybe be inducted as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's an incredible honor and celebration for you, but also for the 10 year old version yeah, of you. And exactly. You just have to imagine what she would be thinking or what yeah. she would be saying. Well, Trisha, yeah. you're you're amazing. Thank you for not only believing in yourself, but not believing in barriers and moving past any obstacle because your life has been a vision and an inspiration to so many. So thank you so much, Trisha. Well,
1: thank you for having me and allowing me to share my story with not just you, but, you know, thousands of other people to be able to be a positive, you know, influence in their lives.
0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you gained wisdom that will help you rule your life. Let's stay connected on social media. We're at Ruling Sports on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at rulingsports.com and email me your thoughts about the show at alicia at rulingsports.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review the show, and join us next time.